What do you get when you cross an action star with a lovable character from the Australian outback? You get Crocodile Dundee, of course. The story of Crocodile Dundee is as much the story of the legendary Paul Hogan and how he brought Australian culture to the world. Crocodile Dundee was a massive hit, and it spawned two sequels while making Hogan a worldwide star. This is a look back to that period of the 80s when it seemed as if Paul Hogan ruled the world. Australia. My uncle and cousin lived there, as do my godfather and his family. I lived in Sydney for a little while years ago too, so growing up we were very aware of Australian culture. When Crocodile Dundee came out, it was perfect. Not only was it funny, but felt relatable and understandable to us. If you're Australian, you may or may not like some of the representation, but it certainly took the world by storm. My Aussie family loves seeing some of their expressions and customs catching on like wildfire over here. Everyone now knew what a Foster's was. I know there are way better Aussie beers like Tui's VB or my favorite, a Han's Super Dry. Not that I've partaken in too many of them. But for a good chunk of the 80s, Paul Hogan was the hottest thing around. Crocodile Dundee hit like a sledgehammer and became a beloved favorite of the decade. This is a look back on the man behind the croc and the legacy of the Crocodile Dundee franchise. The story of Paul Hogan is a true rags to riches tale. Hogan was born on October 8, 1939 in Lightning Ridge, New South Wales. But apparently he made this up as he was actually born in Sydney. To him, a place like Lightning Ridge just sounded better and Sydney was too boring. He lived in Granville in Western Sydney and even worked as a rigger on the iconic Sydney Harbour Bridge when he was younger. The first shot of Crocodile Dundee would feature a shot of the bridge. Hogan's first brush with entertainment came in 1971. If you're Aussie and of a certain age, you may remember a show called New Faces. It was an amateur talent show similar to America's Got Talent. The difference here is that judges would berate and insult the contestants. Hogan thought they needed to be brought down a notch and appeared on the show under the guise of a tap dancing knife thrower. Hogan went on the show and proceeded to lay into the judges and ended up by just throwing the knives on the floor. This went over big time and Hogan was invited back to the show. He would come up with a stupid stunt idea that was just a way for him to start telling jokes. Hogan was a natural entertainer and it got him a spot on the show A Current Affair, the Australian one. Hogan would go on and make comedic remarks on the current news stories. It's a little like Steve Carell when he appeared on The Colbert Report. Hogan soon got his own show, The Paul Hogan Show, which is where most Australians would come to know him. It ran from 1973 to 1984 and was kind of a character-driven show. David, why do you turn your toast upside down? Because the taste buds are on the top of your toast. <laughs> And I just love the taste of daffodil. Oh, but darling, that's new stalk. It's definitely creamier. 
Looking back on this, Hogan does somewhat remind me of the great Jim Varney, a.k.a. Ernest P. Worrell, in that his comedy was character-based. The Paul Hogan show shares some similarities to the incredible and vastly underrated Haven It's Ernest show that Jim Varney had in the 1980s. And I've done a whole show all about that if you want to go back and check it out. Hogan was becoming big time and appearing in national advertising campaigns. He would also become the face of the iconic Foster's Lager in England. Going into the mid-80s, Hogan had really elevated his presence, not only in Australia, but in other corners of the world. But would he be able to conquer America? If you grew up in the 80s, or you're just a fan of the 80s movies, you know that most action-based films are all about blood and kill counts. Besides movies like Die Hard, Rambo, Predator, Red Dawn, Commando, and Terminator, it seems as if every other movie was just a bloodbath. Paul Hogan could be an interesting alternative. He was already this rugged outback character with the funny accent, but avoiding the excessive violence of these other mainstream movies could be a great way for him to stand out. Maybe having an action hero that didn't pull people's hearts out of their chests could be a better approach. Paul Hogan was already so likable, and putting him into killing mode could diminish his appeal. This was a smart approach. Hogan was just so damn friendly and engaging that it just made sense to let this be reflected on the big screen. Crocodile Dundee was no pushover, however. He just had that jovial good nature that most Aussies I know have. Yes, he could butcher you in two seconds and fight off a croc with his bare hands, but he was just as happy to skull a few pints down at the pub and have a good time. Paul Hogan was an action star, but funny. He was also incredibly charismatic, charming, and all of this translated through the screen, either big or small. He was Tarzan come to life. Looking back, the Crocodile Dundee formula was pretty perfect. I'm glad they went this route and didn't turn him into something he wasn't. Letting Hogan be himself obviously worked, and his appeal would help make Crocodile Dundee a massive hit. If it's been a while since you've seen Crocodile Dundee, or God forbid you've never seen it, here's a quick plot recap. He was raised in the land down under, where a man thinks on his feet, speaks with his fists, and lives by his wits. Sue Charlton is a writer for Newsday. She's also dating her editor, Richard. She is sent to the outback of Australia to report on a wild bushman named Michael J. Crocodile Dundee. Legend has it a croc bit his leg off and after days dragging himself to the outback, he returned alive. Sue has trouble tracking him down and we meet pub owner and Mick's business partner, Wally. Mick eventually shows up and Sue learns he didn't lose his leg but has a pretty nasty gash from a crocodile attack. A scuffle occurs in the bar between some kangaroo hunters and the crocodile hunter, who the kangaroo hunters look down on. Sue isn't all that impressed with Mick. He's a bit of a bumpkin, but then she learns how in tune with nature he is. This is demonstrated when Mick hypnotizes a giant water buffalo. There's then an amazing scene where Mick fights off the kangaroo hunters by firing back at them disguised as a kangaroo. At the end of that scene, Mick calls the kangaroo Skippy, which is a nod to the Australian TV series Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, which ran in Australia in the 1960s. Mick is pretty rough around the edges and refers to Sue as a Sheila. He doesn't think a big city girl has what it takes to survive in the outback. She attempts to prove him wrong, but unbeknownst to her, Mick is watching to make sure she's okay and ends up saving her from a crocodile attack. 
Eventually, Sue invites Mick to come to New York with her. This will be her way of continuing the story, but she's also developing a bit of a liking for old Dundee. Mick makes it to New York, and we get classic montages of him trying to navigate the big city and all its modern customs. You're probably picturing how the movie Elf copied the Crocodile Dundee blueprint. We get a mugging encounter, which gives us one of the greatest and most reused lines in cinema history. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. Fun fact that actually wasn't a real knife and was made of rubber. But don't forget, Sue still has a boyfriend, and at dinner, and in front of Mick, he proposes to her. We find out, not surprisingly, that Richard is kind of a tool. Mick is distraught and decides to go walk about around the U.S. Sue realizes she cares for Mick, leaves Richard, and tracks Mick down at a subway station. This was actually filmed in an old abandoned subway station in New York. A great scene involving the crowd relaying messages between Mick and Sue takes place, and he crowd surfs by walking on their heads so the two can finally live happily ever after the end. As mentioned, like the movie Elf, Crocodile Dundee is a basic fish-out-of-water, stranger-in-a-strange-land formula. And honestly, this always works. Yes, there are definitely some problematic things in Crocodile Dundee that don't translate well today, though. But, you know, people weren't on the lookout for things like that in the 80s. You could also argue that even modern movies like Borat simply copied the Crocodile Dundee formula by taking a small towner from another country and dropping him into big city New York. Here's the other genius part of Crocodile Dundee. It's technically a rom-com. This was such a smart idea because it stretched the movie's appeal. Romantic comedies were getting huge in the 80s, and movies like When Harry Met Sally showed how powerful this genre could be. No one knew what a big moneymaker they really were until When Harry Met Sally came out, and Crocodile Dundee kind of picked up on that. Honestly, there was something for everyone to love in this movie. Crocodile Dundee tapped into this, and they created a movie that was funny, action-filled, adventurous, romantic, dramatic, and ultimately had a lot of heart. All of these components and the charm of Paul Hogan are what drew us in. People often wonder what makes the movies of the 80s stand out so much. It's hard to put your finger on them, but they just seem more timeless than other decades. Nostalgia plays a big part, but every decade has nostalgia. I think one of the big reasons the movies of the 80s connect so well with people is that many films are made up of multiple genres. This gives them a wider range of appeal. Crocodile Dundee has at least five or six different genres combined, as do, say, movies like Back to the Future or Ghostbusters. With Back to the Future, it's science fiction, time travel, action-adventure, comedy, teen movie, and romance story all combined. Ghostbusters is science fiction, supernatural, a comedy, action-adventure, and ensemble style all combined too. 
Or how about a movie like Gremlins? It's fantasy, science fiction, black comedy, Christmas movie, and regular comedy, but with an underlying teenage romance. Each genre is appealing on its own, but when you combine several together, it seems to create a lot of magic, and that seemed to happen more often in the 80s. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. But let's look at the production on Making Crocodile Dundee. The idea for the character of Mick Dundee actually came when Paul Hogan took a trip to New York. Hogan said he felt way out of place and his accent stood out like a sore thumb. Today, we are much more ingrained with Aussie culture, but dare I say it was somewhat of a novelty in the 70s and 80s. The Simpsons, of course, have made great reference to all of this in their classic episode, Bart vs. Australia. Hogan wanted to be an Australian folk hero, kind of like an Aussie Clint Eastwood. The idea for the movie was formed, and it can be considered a truly independent film. Nearly 1,400 different investors contributed money to the project, including NXS frontman Michael Hutchins. 1986 was a big year for Australia. Along with Crocodile Dundee, NXS recorded Kick, truly one of the best albums of all time. If you haven't heard this thing in a while, please give it a re-listen. It's pretty astonishing. Speaking of Aussie music in the 80s, shout out to Midnight Oil and Men at Work, and I guess Kylie Minogue after she was on Neighbors. To my English and Aussie listeners who also grew up in the 80s, yes, I watched Neighbors when I lived in England, and yes, I was caught up in the Scott Charlene storyline and the real-life Jason-Kylie romance. I once actually got Jason Donovan's autograph after a performance of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but I digress. When it came time to film the movie, they would set the first part right in the Australian outback. The outback isn't a singular thing, and there are many Aussie regions that have them. But if you've ever been to Australia and have gone anywhere near an outback, you know it's some of the harshest environments on Earth. Filming there would be a nightmare. The outback is as remote as it gets, and the cast and crew had to sleep in a hut near an old miner's camp. The crew would spend six weeks in that location. They filmed other scenes around Queensland and the Northern Territory. The scene where Sue is attacked obviously features a fake croc, but the water buffalo scene was clearly real. The buffalo, though, had to be tranquilized so Hogan could interact with it. Following the Australian filming, production would move to New York City for another six weeks, and the film wrapped on October 11, 1985. But there was a big issue. Since Australian culture was still pretty foreign to North American audiences, how Aussie could they make this thing? Well, the version shown in the US actually differs from the original version first shown in Australia. There were fears that American audiences just wouldn't get the Australian slang and jokes, so a lot of that was cut. The Aussie version also features a few more F-bombs in it. The original version also featured more outback scenes. They left those in for the Australian audiences, but included more footage of New York in the American release. And then there was the title and logo. The original Aussie version was simply called Crocodile Dundee. 
here in North America, that was changed to Crocodile Dundee with the crocodile in quotations. This was so audiences would know it was a nickname and that it wasn't a crocodile monster movie. You can't make this stuff up. In the studio's defense, there was a film called Alligator that had come out in 1980. Crocodile Dundee was released on September 26, 1986, but if you're Australian and grew up in the 80s, you probably remember it debuting much earlier as it came out there over five months before. Fun fact, when it was released, Crocodile Dundee was the highest grossing film of all time in Australia, surpassing the previous champ, E.T., because of the great appeal of Hogan, some great reviews, and a lot of positive word of mouth, Crocodile Dundee debuted in America at number one. And it stayed there for an astounding nine weeks. I wonder now if it would have been even more successful had it been released in the summer. Either way, on a budget of just $8 million, Crocodile Dundee made that back in its first weekend. This is before weekend opening grosses were a real thing. And then it caught on like wildfire. Crocodile Dundee would go on to gross nearly $330 million, or when converted for today, adjusted for inflation, is $900 million, a truly staggering amount for what is technically considered a comedy. Crocodile Dundee was the second highest grossing film of the entire year, beating out movies like The Karate Kid Part Two, Aliens, The Color Purple, Star Trek IV, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Stand By Me. The only movie to beat it? Top Gun. Also released that year, Labyrinth, Flight of the Navigator, Howard the Duck, The Fly, and Transformers the Movie. 1986 was truly an outstanding year for movies, one of the best of the decade. Before its release, no one thought Crocodile Dundee would be a hit. 20th Century Fox executives apparently watched only 20 minutes of the film and said no deal and refused to distribute it. Apparently, there were even talks of cutting it shorter and, believe it or not, giving it an American overdubbing. Besides the Mad Max movies, no Australian film had made a splash in North America, and there was no reason this would either. The only one who had faith in it? Paul Hogan himself. He predicted the movie would make millions of dollars around the world, and was obviously faced with laughter. Paramount Pictures would end up distributing the movie and hit the jackpot with it. Along with finishing number two in the U.S., Crocodile Dundee would also be the second highest grossing movie of the year worldwide and the highest grossing non-U.S. film ever. It also passed Mad Max to become the highest grossing Australian film ever. One more fact here. Crocodile Dundee was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. It was also nominated for two BAFTAs and four Golden Globes, including Best Actor, which Paul Hogan won. One more fun fact here, Crocodile Dundee remains to this day the most watched program on Christmas Day in the UK. In 1989, nearly 22 million people tuned in to watch Mick Dundee. Because of its phenomenal success, a sequel was inevitable. Paul Hogan was a hot commodity and they had to strike while the iron was hot. He hosted the 59th Academy Awards and went right back to work on the follow-up to Crocodile Dundee. Crocodile Dundee 2 would come out on May 25th, 1988. This time, Hogan would be an executive producer. He also co-wrote it with his son. In Crocodile Dundee 2, we pick things up a year after the first movie. Sue and Mick are living together in New York, even though Mick still sleeps on the floor. We then get a drug cartel story where Sue's ex-husband is murdered for seeing something he shouldn't have. 
The cartel leaders follow the pitchers to New York and kidnap Sue. Mick is able to rescue her, and the two of them get out of the city and head to Australia to lie low. Mick takes Sue to his own private land where the two hide out. The cartel make it to Australia and tracks him down with his friend Wally. They attempt to track Mick through the outback, which proves disastrous for the cartel. Mick finally confronts the head of the cartel, and despite some mistaken identities, the head is eventually taken out, falls off a cliff to his demise. Mick had been mistakenly shot, but he's okay, and he and Sue look to settle in Australia permanently. Crocodile Dundee 2 had a lot of hype to live up to, but I think it held its own. I also loved this movie, as did many other people. It didn't hit the level of the first film, but was still a box office hit. Despite a relatively low budget of $14 million, Crocodile Dundee 2 made $240 million, which, adjusted for inflation today, is nearly $600 million. Another astonishing take for a comedy. You may not be aware of this, but there is a Crocodile Dundee 3. It would come out years later in 2001. But before all that, Hogan was still a big draw. He would make other movies like Flipper and Lightning Jack. And this may be the fact of the podcast, Hogan actually turned down the starring role in Ghost. That's right, Hogan and not Patrick Swayze could have been ruining pottery with Demi Moore to Unchained Melody. Instead of ghosts, he took on another supernatural project that came out that same year, Almost an Angel. Going into the 90s, there was actually an idea for a Crocodile Dundee Beverly Hills Cop crossover film. This seems like a license to print money, as I can't imagine a better collaboration at the time. It was pitched by a Paramount executive, but surprisingly, nothing came of it. So that brings us to Crocodile Dundee 3. I'm not sure what we can say about this thing, but it was called Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. In this technical sequel, Mick and Sue move to LA. Sue is the bureau chief of a newspaper and Mick spends his time as an amateur undercover investigator. Many saw it as an unnecessary sequel. The movie wasn't a total box office bomb, but it only made around 40 million, which was a far cry from its predecessors. It felt like a weird time to release a Crocodile Dundee follow-up. I think now enough time has passed where the nostalgia factor would create some more interest. During the Super Bowl in 2018, a few fake film trailers appeared which seemed to hint at a new Crocodile Dundee movie. The commercial featured Danny McBride and Chris Hemsworth, but was actually a tourism Australia ad. They shot it like a real trailer and it even featured a cameo by Paul Hogan. The response to the commercial was surprisingly overwhelming, creating interest in a potential fourth movie. I don't know if we will ever get this, but Chris Hemsworth talked about being open to discussions about one. He can pretty much do no wrong, so give me any form of a Crocodile Dundee movie with him as the son of Mick or something like that. So Crocodile Dundee was a huge part of my life growing up. As mentioned, because of family, we were already pretty adverse in Australian culture. A movie like Crocodile Dundee seemed tailor-made for us. It became an instant part of our viewing rotation, and many lines from the movie became standard go-tos in our family. There are certain lines and phrases that we still use to this day, often not even realizing they are from Crocodile Dundee. I never got to see it in theaters, as my mother wasn't too sure how appropriate it was. But I remember anxiously waiting for her and my dad to get back to hear if it was great when they went to see it. And it was. 
Eventually, when it found its way into home video, it forever found a place on our VHS tape shelf. Your experience with Crocodile Dundee may be different, but there's no denying the impact it and Paul Hogan made on popular culture in the 1980s. The premise and execution of the movie were simple, but it was the endearing appeal of Hogan that makes it a beloved character and film to this day. So let's finish it there. Hopefully you were a fan of Crocodile Dundee, maybe not as big, or you maybe definitely remember it as it made, a, like I said, a massive cultural impact. So I'll finish it off. And just speaking of movies, and if you're in a position to do so, you can consider um, supporting this podcast through patreon.com. So that's the platform for as little as a few dollars a month to support, you know, small independent podcasts like this. The difference is there you get audio rewards and there are different rewards depending on which tier you sponsor at. So example, speaking of movies, the middle tier, the Boba Fett tier gives you access to the everything eighties movie review club. So that's where I review the good, the bad and the ugly of 1980s movies. And I think we've got over a dozen there, you know, so a lot of good stuff to go back and check out. And speaking of Patreon, just would like to welcome some new members, including Michael H and Michael M. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more, if you want to see what it's all about, just head to patreon.com slash 80s, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80s, or wherever you're listening to this on, there should be a link that'll take you right there. So that's it for me. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.